Good morning, church. We're going to be doing things a little bit differently today. We usually have all our singing, or most of our singing, and then a time in the Word, but today we're going to reverse things a little bit, and we're going to align our hearts around the cross of Jesus Christ by coming first to a time in the Word, and then what we're going to do is we're going to respond together in singing. So if you have your Bibles, please open to John chapter 19. We're continuing, actually, in the Gospel of John, and we've come to verse 31. John 19, and I'm going to read from verse 31 to 37. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let's pray. Father, we come before you on a Friday because we know that the cross of Jesus Christ is the most important event in our history. We know that it shapes everything that we do. We know that his death and resurrection is our hope. It is all of our hope in life and in death. And so we come together as the church and ask that you would realign our hearts around the death of Jesus Christ again. We come for your mercy to do this, we pray. Amen. Amen. In the movie Titanic, as the ship is sinking, the rich men on the ship are scrambling to get to the lifeboats, even pushing aside women and children. And so brave soldiers who had been standing back draw pistols and fire their pistols into the air and shout, Stand back, women and children, first. In reality, when the Titanic actually sank, no such action was required. According to the testimony of survivors, the men instinctively hung back. And they urged the women and the children to to fill those lifeboats. They sacrificed themselves. John Jacob Astor, who at the time apparently was the richest man in the world, dragged his wife to a lifeboat and and ushered her on, and they encouraged her, urged him to get on as well. But he stood back and said, women and children must go first. And the New York Times did a, a review of the movie, and in this review, the 
The person who wrote the article asked the question, why were the historical facts so distorted in the writing of the movie? And then this journalist goes on to answer his own question, saying, no one would have believed the real story. No one would have believed it. And I wonder if that's true. If the self-sacrifice that was, it seemed to be just a part of the course of their duty is so foreign to our culture's modern senses that moviegoers would have gone to the movie and thought that that self-sacrifice was just another Hollywood exaggeration. Well, the true story of the sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah has been chalked off by the world as Christian exaggeration. That in every moment leading up to the cross, in the, in the death of Jesus Christ, to the point where Jesus gives up his spirit, and we know that God is completely in control, Jesus is not a helpless victim, but a willing savior, knowing that death could not hold him, this has been chalked off by the world as exaggeration. The world can't accept the truth of that sacrifice because to accept that, you have to accept something else. And that's that we need saving. For John's first century Jewish readers, this idea is similarly unpalatable. The idea of a Messiah whose saving work would mean dying on a cursed Roman cross is unthinkable. Do you remember how the Jewish leaders mocked him? We looked at this on Sunday. They're blind to his atoning work and he's hanging on the cross. It's proof for them that he's not the Messiah. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let him come down and we'll believe. But John is writing this gospel and these details to persuade us to persuade the world to believe that we should believe. He's saying in these details, he is the king of the Jews. He is the savior of the world. And so John alone includes these postscriptive details about the cross. And he seems convinced that they are further reason for us to believe. This one who, as we get to this point in the story, is dead dead and nailed to a cross, John thinks he is worthy of all our faith and hope. In verse 35, he says, he who is born witness, his testimony is true. He's speaking about himself and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. John is saying, I'm taking the witness stand. I'm taking the sacred vow before God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And what I saw is true. And so we come to this passage and we ask the question, why, having mentioned these two details, the legs that were not broken and the side being pierced and the blood and water flowing from his side, why for John is this more reason for us to believe. What here ought to lead to our faith? And having asked that question, it raises another question. What would that faith look like? If these de details are meant to lead to faith, what would that faith look like? We're going to answer these two questions as we consider this text this morning. Number one, why his death is cause for faith? Why his death is cause for faith. On one level, 
John is simply showing, and there's a reason to believe, he's simply showing that Jesus, the Messiah, was actually dead. That is a purpose for John. He was really human, and he really died. Without this, without Jesus being fully God and fully man, Christianity falls apart. Because without it, there is no grounds for faith in his mediation and the covenant between God and man. And there's no grounds if he did not die, or we can't be sure that he died, there's no grounds for faith in his resurrection to conquer the grave. Many would deny the resurrection, and many do. But some go a little bit further back and, and say he never even died. They deny that he really died. At the time that John is writing the gospel, there's a group that's beginning to form and have influence called the, the Docetists. The Docetists had a, a Greek sort of false view of the flesh, saying that flesh inherently is evil. And so God couldn't possibly have taken on human form. He only appeared to, he only seemed to. The, the Greek word dokeo means to seem or appear. Many docetists, in fact, denied that Jesus truly died. There's no way God could die on a cross. He only appeared to. But John would have none of it. And so in the details, this is what he wants us to see. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. This day of preparation is a colloquial term for the Friday before Sabbath. The Sabbath would begin at sunset and this Sabbath was particularly important because it was a, a high Sabbath. It was the Sabbath that fell during Passover week. So this day of preparation is the day of preparation of Passover. And they usually, when somebody was crucified, they usually left them on the cross, the Romans did, until they died. And that could take days sometimes. But if there was reason to hasten their deaths, Roman soldiers would come with an iron mallet. And they would break the legs of the victims. Such was Roman mercy. Because once their legs were broken, they would not have been able to push up on their legs in order to open their chest cavities. They wouldn't have been able to breathe properly. Once this act was, um, uh, once they broke their legs, asphyxia would have followed very quickly. In fact, in 1968, we found the remains of, of a a man north of uh, Jerusalem in a cave, one of his shins fractured and another completely shattered, exactly like John is describing here. And now the Jews, they're eager to speed up the deaths. The bodies, they don't want them to remain on the cross into the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 21 verse 22 to 23 insists that someone executed by hanging on a tree should not remain there overnight. Such a person, the book says, is under God's curse and leave, leaving them there would leave the land to desecration. The land would be defiled. It's interesting. Deuteronomy, this passage is a, a little bit obscure because nowhere in the law does it actually say, does it, that, that somebody should be killed by hanging on a, on a tree. It's just in this passage, if that happens... Don't leave the body there overnight. It's as if it was written in anticipation of something. 
The soldiers come and starting on the criminals to the right and the left of Jesus, they break their legs to speed up their deaths and then they come to Christ and find him already dead. So they don't break Jesus' legs. Now remember, these are Roman soldiers. These are the experts. If they've been given an order to go and break legs and they, they come and they don't do that, it means they know that the person is already dead. In fact, just for good measure, they, they shove a spear into his torso. Apparently, there are different opinions as to why blood and water would flow. I'm not a doctor. Speak to Dave. Um, but apparently, one of the possibilities is that due to massive blood loss, as what would have happened in his scourging, uh, massive blood loss would have meant at the point of death, the heart would have been working in overdrive, and that would have led to fluid in the, the pericardium and around the lungs. And so that's why when he was stabbed like this, water would have come out with the blood. Whatever the medical reason is, John is saying there's massive trauma that has happened. Another confirmation that he was dead. And on Good Friday, we ought not to miss the gravity of this moment. He was the Word of God from the beginning. He was the Word who became flesh and He dwelt among us and we received Him not, but rather we crucified Him. We put the Son of God to death. And John is inviting us in this moment, as we so often sing here at the church, come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the very God of life. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory. This is grace unmeasured, love untold, we sing. Does this weigh heavily on your heart today? It should. On another level, his death should cause faith because it wasn't in defeat that Christ died, but it was in victory. Remember, he shouted from the cross, it is finished. This isn't a failed hope. This was to be expected. This is what John says in verses 36 and 37. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Psalm 34 verse 20, speaking of God's care for the righteous king, says, he keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. And remember what time this is? This is Passover time. And the Passover regulations in the Old Testament, both in Exodus 12, 46 and in Numbers 9, verse 12, both of them specify no bone of the Passover lamb was to be broken. Well, Jesus came and John the Baptist saw him and confessed, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' saving work, you see, was grander than what they had come to expect he wasn't just coming to rule and to establish an earthly kingdom. He was coming first to save us. To save us from that which would have separated us from the possibility of being in that kingdom with God. Of dwelling with Him. 
Jesus came to deal with sin. The piercing of his side fulfills a prophecy in Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 9, there is an oracle of a king who is coming. A king who is also a shepherd who will save his people, the flock of Israel. He comes, Zechariah says, humble and mounted on a donkey. And then in chapter 11, this humble king is contrasted with the, the false shepherds of Israel and betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In chapter 12, a new oracle begins, an oracle that ends in victory for God's people. But even in this oracle in chapter 13, the shepherd is struck down and the sheep scatter. And in 12 verse 10, we see Zechariah portray the mourning of a people who have looked upon the one that they have pierced. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The Jews couldn't comprehend a Messiah that would die on a Roman cross. And John is saying, don't you see? He is the one Zechariah prophesied about. He is the shepherd king who rode in on a donkey, who was betrayed, pierced, who was struck down, but who is victorious in his death. And I was there. I saw it. I saw the spear go into his side and I saw the blood and the water flow. His death was no mistake. Rather, it's the foundation of your faith. So, what does appropriate faith in this one who died look like? Number two, the kind of faith his death, his death must cause. What kind of faith does it cause? Firstly, it involves mourning. It involves mourning. John will make reference to Zechariah 12 again, the same prophecy do you remember where else he talks about it? In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. When he comes, they will look upon him, the one they have pierced, and there will be mourning on that day. But John says there it will be the wailing of those for whom it is too late. And so he invites us in John 19, look upon him today. Look upon him now. The one that your sins have pierced and mourned today. Zechariah speaks of this mourning as of a, a deep contrition. And so we know on account of Jesus, all will mourn. Either in repentance, or in grim des desperation and despair. Good Friday is a day of God's grace because Good Friday is a day of mourning. We mourn today not for what Jesus went through. We don't feel sorry for Jesus on Good Friday. Luke 23 says that when he was going to the cross, a crowd was following who was weeping and lamenting over them. And he says to them in verse 28, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. 
Good Friday is not a day for feeling sorry for Jesus. It requires no work of the Holy Spirit to feel sorry for a suffering man. Good Friday is a day for mourning over sin. Faith in Christ means a mourning that takes seriously and understands and is confronted with the truth of my role in nailing, nailing him to the tree. My sin that pierced his heart. And so Christian, what is your relationship to sin? Now we are all sinners. We will be sinners until the day that we die. John says in 1 John, if any says that he is without sin, the truth is not in him. But faith means having a certain heart posture towards sin because you have a heart posture towards the Savior. And that posture is one of love for the Savior. That means I hate my sin. Do we harbor sin in our lives? Do we decry it in public but stroke it tenderly behind closed doors? letting its taste savor on our tongue. Someone has said we are far too hospitable with our sin. Is that not true? When was the last time that you felt the gravity of your sin as what it is? Betrayal against a holy God. Rather, we are called to mortify it, to, to put it to death, to seek to slay it, that which caused our Savior's death. We are called to die to ourselves, deny ourselves, to confess our sin, to drag it out into the light and do what we must to be rid of it and throw ourselves upon His mercy. This is the morning we're called to. It's coming to the Holy Spirit and asking for intervention the surgeon's scalpel to cut in order that we may be healed. Faith is daily repentance. It's holy dissatisfaction with the sin in our lives as we look to His mercy. Faith means mourning. And secondly, faith means rejoicing. Good Friday is called Good Friday for a reason, is it not? Jesus said in Matthew 5, Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The shepherd king who was pierced and struck down in Zechariah is the Lord Jesus, and he comes to us, he comes to his sheep in John 10, 11, and says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And now John shares this detail of his side being pierced and the blood and the water flowing and it's difficult, I imagine, for the first century readers to see this detail of blood and water, not to remember another promise, a promise that is given in Zechariah. In Zechariah 13, verse 1, the prophet says, Of that day that they look upon him, the one whom they have pierced, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. One scholar has said of the Gospel of John, if you took his Gospel and you squeezed it hard enough, water would come gushing out of it. We see water throughout the Gospel of John in rich symbolism. Think of chapter 2 where Jesus commands them to fill jars with water so that he could bring joy to a wedding feast by turning the water into wine. 
In chapter 4, he meets a, a troubled woman at the well. And he points to the water of that well and says in verse 14, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In chapter 5, he meets a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And this man is desperate to crawl into the water when the water is stirred because they believe that that would bring healing. And Jesus comes and says, don't worry, something better than the pool is here. And he heals him with the word. Chapter 7, Jesus stands up at the Feast of Tabernacles on a prominent place on the last great day of the feast and cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In chapter 9, he meets a blind man and tells him to go and heal, or go and wash, sorry, in the pool of Siloam, but then first uses his own saliva to heal. Chapter 13, to show his love to the disciples, he takes a basin of water and he stoops down. He kneels and he washes their feet. An act, he says, um, points forward to the washing that would come through his death. And after all of this, this message throughout the Gospel of John that Jesus Christ himself is the fountain of living water, what shock is ours when on the cross we hear him cry, I thirst. The full expression of our Lord's sacrifice for sin, the fountain of living water is dried up as he himself takes our judgment and takes our wrath upon himself for sin. But having cried then, it is finished and giving up his spirit there is good news for you and me. For from the cross flows living water. When his side is pierced, as the rock in Exodus was pierced, so flows a fountain from the cross. Whatever else is in John's mind and sharing these details, surely there is this, the sign of life flowing out from Jesus, even through his death. So Good Friday is a day for mourning, but it is also a day for rejoicing. The cross leads us to repentance, but it leads us to glorying. I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. And this is the heart of faith. This is faith's desire. Let me be found at the foot of the cross, near the cross, there a precious fountain. And so what about you? Has the king, the one who was lifted up on the cross, has he drawn you to himself? And do you experience today this dual Christian experience, mourning over sin, but rejoicing at being found at the foot of the cross? That is how we live our lives. That's how we live, always mourning and always rejoicing. And that's where we want to stay. So that's what we're going to do right now. I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond together in a time of singing on Good Friday, a time for mourning and a time also for rejoicing. Let's pray.
Dear Father, as we come together as your people and come again to the foot of the cross, that which is our life, as we come to drink of the fountain of living water, we come again for your mercy. We thank you again for your forgiveness and for your grace. We ask for your power, a power over sin that would see us refuse it and cling to you. We ask that you would keep us close to you, that you, you would draw near our hearts again. And we ask that you would help us to rejoice in faith, the faith of assurance that what we have in Jesus Christ, the fountain of living water. Amen.